I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Sometimes CEOs can be a little evasive. Of course, they're nowhere near as evasive as politicians, but particularly if they are the CEO of a public company, they do have to be quite careful what they say to journalists. That can make interviews with them a little unengaging. All this makes today's guest a real breath of fresh air. Serious Point's various twists and turns in strategy and changes in senior management have made it a little hard to follow in the last couple of years. Was the firm a hedge fund reinsurer, or was it a hybrid venture capital-style incubator and investor? Or was it actually a fairly traditional international specialist insurance and reinsurance business? In the past, it may well have been all three of these and more, all at once. But Scott Egan is here to do something about all of that. Relatively quickly into the role, he's acted decisively and communicated very clearly what his plan for the business is going forward. This podcast lays everything out really concisely. Scott let me ask all the questions I wanted to ask and answered them all very clearly where he could. So if you've been scratching your head about what Serious Point strategy has been all about, allow 35 minutes of Scott straight talking to make things clear. Scott's incredibly direct and engaging and his communication couldn't be more plain. It's disarming and refreshing and I highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Scott, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. For those who don't know you, I'm sure most people do know you or know of you, why don't you just give us a quick career highlights rundown and sort of give us the story of how you came to be where you're sitting now? Yeah, of course. No, I'm happy to. So I've been in insurance 30 years now, Mark, so probably that makes me the most boring man at a dinner party, that (laughs) coupled with the fact that I'm an accountant by trade. But I've worked across the sector for a long time. I've worked for many of the names that people will recognise, Aviva, Zurich, Brit, Towergate, and latterly, I was the CEO of RSA's UK and international business. And prior to that, I was the group CFO, and I sat on the main board, FTSE 100 board of RSA. So that's my plotted career history. As I said, I'm an accountant by trade. I've probably spent two thirds of my career in finance in various finance roles, and I've spent the other third of that in general management roles. And how long have you been at Sirius now? I've now been five months, not quite almost, yeah, so I'm coming up on my five months anniversary. You coming in feels like a watershed moment for Serious Point. There'd been a lot of change, a lot of different transformations, obviously the merger between Third Point and Serious to create that, and then a strategy, and now a change of strategy with your arrival. How can you distill to us what's your core vision of what Serious Point should be? Yeah, so look, we took an opportunity through our earnings call to really re-establish what Serious Point is, what it stands for, and some of the things that we're thinking about going forward. So if I start with the first point, which is really I see Serious Point as being made up of three core businesses. Firstly, there's the underwriting business, which I've been very strong to emphasize since I came here. And I understand in making that emphasis, that's perhaps a change from the past. The second part of the business, which is our fee income business, which is related to our MGAs. And the third part is, of course, our investment income or our investments business. We see that as a great source of differentiation in the marketplace. It's a diversification, particularly with the level of service fee income we have relative to underwriting. And therefore, I think that concoction is actually an attractive mix for investors in the company. 
when you say focus on being an underwriting business, you think perhaps people thought your perception would be that you were an underwriter who was happy to bring in float and then run a combined ratio over 100 because you're providing float to somebody else who's going to invest it and that the money would be made on the asset side of the balance sheet. Is that the perception? I think there's two perceptions, actually. So I think one could be that where, and particularly in reference to third point and the legacy ownership and the legacy organisations, I think, therefore, that's a fair perception coming in. And certainly I've had that feedback from both customers and investors, actually. But I think there's a second one, which is relating more to the strategy of the previous management team, where the business was very acquisitive in the distribution space and in particular in the MGA space. And certainly the amount of deals that were done over quite a short period of time, I think created a perception around the organization and the direction it was taking. So I was very clear when I came in here that first and foremost, this organization is an underwriting organization. I want us to be better at it. I think we deserve to be, but I'm a happy owner of distribution where it overlaps with our underwriting strategy But I've also been clear, particularly in the recent earnings calls, that the expectation should not be for us to be an active acquirer in the distribution space in the near term. And therefore, that is a change, perhaps, to the more recent past. And that investment income, is that going to be a different flavour from what it has been? Obviously, there's been de-risking over time, and the old third point would have been described as a hedge fund re, and to move away from that. So what kind of investment income would it be more recognisable to your peers and more comparable to your peers, i.e. fairly vanilla, fairly correlated to government bond yields type income? You've stolen my word mark that I actually (laughs) used used when I described the investment portfolio. So first and foremost, we've made a huge amount of change during 2022 to the investment mix. And therefore, when you look at our overall portfolio now, the hedge fund aspect of it has reduced significantly. So just to give you a couple of reference points, it was about 1.2, 1.3 billion allocated to that in 2021 Q2. At the end of 2022, it's 100 million. So the context of six and a half billion of investments, it's a de minimis amount and therefore a really significant shift. And so if you look at our portfolio, it's high quality, fixed income, short duration. And I would say we're differentiated in a slight way, which I would argue our investment portfolio is actually of a higher quality when compared to some of our peers in the marketplace. So I think just to steal your phrase again, much more vanilla, much more what people would expect when they look at an insurance organisation. And my philosophy in that is really simple, which is if our investors want to take investment risk, and I mean that in the wider sense of the word, then I think they're the best takers of it rather than paying me to take that for them. Yeah, they can invest in their own funds. 100%. And what sort of balance are you looking for? When you're looking at the composition of your future profits and you're looking at how much of it's coming from underwriting income and how much of it's coming from that fee income and how much is coming from investment income, do you have an ideal balance in mind? I'm sure it's one of those things you never actually achieve that ideal balance any any given moment, any given quarter. But do you have a rough idea of what sort of proportion they should be in? Well, we haven't given out mixed targets at the moment. And I think there's a really strong reason for that, Mark. I'm very clear coming in here that this organisation has to re-establish its credibility in the marketplace. Its more recent track record has been checkered. And therefore, I think in the near term, and by that I mean 2023, I think it's really about getting some rungs on the board, back to my underwriting focus, show that we can actually make money from underwriting. That's why we've done so much work to reduce volatility, etc. We've also given, as part of our earnings release, some really explicit guidance 
on our investment income, 220 to 240 million dollars. So therefore, I think people have certainly an idea of what we would make in that particular dimension. But we haven't, and I don't want to be locked in at this stage in saying exactly what and where comes from the different parts of the business. I think that will emerge because it has to, because we've set the overall strategic aim of trying over time to become best in class in the markets in which we operate. We need to define that for our investors. Do you don't have any other specific sort of milestone in mind in four or five years' time or something? Well, I have because we've been thinking about it internally. I'm not yet ready to take that out and really share it externally yet. But I have an ambition that this business could and should be bigger. I think it's built on the specialisms that we have. And it's one of the things I'm most proud about in working at Sirius Point. The specialisms that are in this organisation are there that demonstrate real deep understanding of people who are trying to protect risk in some very, very specific areas. I think that's the biggest strength of this organisation and is in the DNA in everything that we do. I think once we establish that, then I think we're able to go forward and really articulate in a much more eloquent fashion some of the targets that you align to. But I know if we get that right, the rest will come. At risk of sounding biased, I must say reading your results so you can see on, on an underlying basis a lot of really good things in there. It's not as if you have to heave hugely to one way or another, that actually no, there's I, quite I, a lot I, of hard I, yards have already been done or there's some good core business there, very good core. Yeah, I completely agree. We made some really tough decisions in Q3, which was to exit our property international cap business. But the reasons behind that were one of performance and volatility. And so we've done that. We've reduced our PMLs by over 50%. So I think there's some real evidence points that we've reduced that and investors, et cetera, should take comfort from that. But I want to be clear externally that it's not a risk-off organisation. We took that surgery because it was important. But I want to grow where we have that expertise and that confidence and that overall underwriting return. And what I would say is that ex-property, this business was profitable. In 2022, it definitely can be better, right? So I'm not being complacent, but I think that in itself is an important measure. That cat move is permanent, one would presume, even though, of course, the way the market is, of course, enough people felt the same as you at this last renewal, where there was almost a rendition moment where everyone had quite enough of global cat volatility and perfectly understandably so, and pulled out. And of course, that gave that market a huge opportunity to reset. Would you ever be tempted to come back if these terms have now been fundamentally reset and improved and some of that volatility has been removed because some of the excess points and the attachment points are so much higher and it's going back to doing what it perhaps was supposed to have done. It was supposed to be cat business and have become attritional business. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com, and I'll do everything I can to get you started. Yeah, look, it's probably my most asked question. <laughs> uh, well, since, of course, you'd be very welcomely Q- returned as the prodigal son. <laughs> no, no, well, listen, it's my most asked question since Q3, since we made the difficult decision I just articulated. But look, I think it's very clear 
why we had to make that decision. I think having made it, we were very clear that market conditions were improving. And so we weren't doing it in a vacuum, to be really frank. You shouldn't expect us to reverse that decision. And we're very clear about the areas and the markets that we want to operate in. Be really clear, we are in property cap. It's just very much focused on the US and not internationally around the world. Another thing that came out of your results was, there was certainly a phrase I picked out, was this rebalancing of the portfolio towards insurance and services. Obviously, it's clear that you've had a retrenchment from the international property cap end of the reinsurance market. But what sort of balance have you got in mind when you, you say you're going to be more of an insurance business and a services business than, presumably, than a reinsurance business? And where would that balance be again? So again, we haven't gone external and set explicit targets. Let we can me, see the direction of travel. But, but let me talk explicitly. So we're about 60-40 now, 60% insurance and services, 40% reinsurance. There are two areas that we're really focusing our capital, resources, intellect, people on, and those are our London market business in particular, where we believe we have great infrastructure in our Lloyd syndicate and in our managing agent. We also have great relationships across the London market, many of whom I know well from my past. And so we believe that's a real opportunity for us to grow. And the great thing about our specialisms is I think they fit incredibly well in that marketplace. So we're excited to do that. We've obviously brought in a new CEO of that business, Rob Gibbs, who has experience in it. And so I'm excited to see the plans for that. I have to give Rob a few months to come in and get his head around the business, the specialisms, but I think that could be something that's exciting for us over time. I think the second part of growing insurance and services is our North American program business, which is already substantial, about a billion, as we sit here today. And I think there's great opportunity for us to grow that. Many of the programs come to us because they think we can add value to their business and help them grow, as well as bringing a deep expertise to them in terms of their areas of specialism or the products in which they centre around. So going forward, I would say those are our growth areas and those are the areas that we're dedicating resources to. And I think in reinsurance, we'll be opportunistic and agile. And I think it's easy to say and difficult to do, but I think reinsurance gives us the opportunity to access those markets in a different way. But we should do that subject to market conditions. And sometimes we'll lean more towards reinsurance if the market conditions are favourable. And other times we'll lean towards insurance and services. But I think strategically that's where we're looking to grow. And presumably it's also sometimes you have to lean to where you can actually access the business because if it's not available to you and via one channel, you might have to lean the other way. Yeah, correct. But I would say if you big picture back to your five-year question, I would say if we were sitting here in five years, our insurance and services business will comprise a higher proportion of the group than it does now. But of course, along the way, as always, business ebbs and flows according to economics and market attractiveness. With the programme manager, you're talking as a paper provider really there, or as an underwriter who's then sharing that business with other third-party capital. We're really, I think, more than just a paper provider. That's the thing that, as I've deepened my understanding on the business, and it was what lay behind my comment of we really help these businesses grow. We have a deep expertise that we bring to the table, both in terms of product design, market design, distribution, etc. And I think, you know, many of our partners would describe us as being a really excellent partner in helping grow their business. And so, of course, our role is to provide paper and capital to sit behind the risk. 
but I think it's so much more than that, and that's why people right. choose to So someone to work knows they're this. coming to you because you're really good at this, you really understand this class, you're going to stick with this class when perhaps if this class, like all classes, go through hard times and unexpected things happen and losses come or whatever, the people come to you because, one, you really know it, and two, they probably think you've got a commitment to it. Yes, look, I think relationships are built up over time. And the one thing about working in insurance, back to my 30 years, is there are good times and bad times, but relationships prevail. And so we'll obviously need to do whatever is right for this organisation at different points in time. But I think I fully expect relationships and profitability of those relationships to ebb and flow as well. You've already touched on this, obviously, because this new regime with you in charge is the emphasis on the Lloyd's market, which was something that was going to be de-emphasized with the deal with Mosaic, which was then subsequently cancelled. So can you run us through the logic of that? It's just that you're more of a believer in that Lloyd's platform, perhaps, than your predecessor? Well, look, if you go back to my philosophy, the philosophy is we're an underwriting company. And I believe that Lloyd's, having worked with them before in my past, is a really attractive market. I think it's unique and I think it gives us great access. So I'm excited to have that infrastructure. I think the second thing is I believe that our London market strategically is underexploited for us. And so I've already referenced that. The Mosaic deal specifically, I mean, obviously, as I came to the organisation, the two parties were working hard to try and close out a deal. That deal wasn't able to be closed out. And so we move on. And I said at the time, I think it's really an important part of our infrastructure and I'm really looking forward to the syndicate and the managing agent really working together to exploit the potential going forward. Yeah, because certainly the legacy Sirius has been in London for a very long time. Very long time and we have a strong reputation. I think that has waned slightly over the past years and I think there's been a slight question mark over our long-term future here and that's why it's really important for me Firstly, to re-establish our underwriting credentials as our number one priority. And number two, talk about our ambition to grow thoughtfully in the London space. need to have one last point on the reinsurance market question. Obviously, the reinsurance market reset in favour of reinsurers at 1-1. How has that affected your business? Obviously, you buy reinsurance to cover all of your lines. Obviously, you buy retro to cover your reinsurance as well. Has it affected in any way? Is it permeating back through back to you into your own strategies going forward or are you just thinking well I need to get more rate on the inwards at all times because I already know what I've been charged up front by my reinsurer at 1-1. So let me talk about the 1-1s in two ways. Firstly we were very happy with the rate that we carried as part of our 1-1 renewals obviously different by different markets of course and we were very disciplined as part of those so it's not just about rate it's about terms and conditions as well. And I would say we walked away from certain parts of business that we didn't want to underwrite. And equally, we were very happy underwriters for many of our clients, many of them long-established clients. But I would say the market in the round was attractive at 1-1, perhaps less so as we got closer to the 1-1 date itself. But we had a really good set of 1-1 renewals. On the retro side, you're right to call it out because obviously that can have an incoming effect. We were really, really pleased with our retro cover that we managed to place at the end of the year. And in most simplistic terms, we actually ended up with slightly better cover at the same price. And for us, as I sort of look ahead, I would say we probably going forward would buy less, but 2023 is a transitionary year for this organization. And therefore I think better to have slightly more protection than the other way. But I would sum it up as saying, 
The team did an excellent job on our retro cover. We worked with many established partners who we've worked with for many years. I think it was a great vindication of our balance sheet as well and the trust that they have in our underwriting and reserves. So really pleased and we go forward into 2023 with good protection around our balance sheet. Oh, obviously you had much trimmed PML, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah, but that's my point around potentially we bought too much retro cover and we'll review that at the end of 2023. Also, I suppose as an incoming CEO, is it just good to know that you're less likely to give nasty surprises in the next few quarters while you, you kind of establish a rapport with some of your investors? I think it's less to do with me as a new CEO, actually, and more to recognise that the track record is checkered and therefore to re-establish the credibility of the organisation needs us to make sure that we've got adequate protection wrapped around us. And as I say, I think we've probably lent into that a bit more this year than we otherwise needed to, given the PML reduction. But it's a transition year. And you're absolutely right to say I'd rather have protection against surprises than need to explain them, particularly during that transition year. It's not indicative of greater overall risk aversion, for example. No, no, not at all. So we'll relook at that at the end of the year. And I think the time to look at that is when you've got another year under your belt having taken some of the tough volatility decisions that we've taken. We've already alluded to this earlier on, obviously, when you were having the grand tour of your main vision for the business, but it'd be good to talk about it in more specifics. Obviously, yes, your predecessor, you alluded to this. I did have an interview on the cards with your predecessor, but it didn't actually happen in the end due to circumstances. And one of the questions I would have asked at the time would be, what is Sirius going to become at some point in the future if all this works out? Are you a sort of insurtech investor or VC or an incubator or that, that seems to be a part of your business model now? One, is that a fair description of the investments that this business have made in the last two or three years? And you've said that those are unlikely to going to be part of the future, but obviously you've got a lot of investments on the books and presumably you're going to carry those through and hold them on. Look, let me talk about the strategy from this point forward because I think it's really important. Let me emphasize something I've already said, which is I am a happy owner of distribution, but only where it overlaps with our underwriting footprint. And therefore, you should infer from that, and I'm going to use your phraseology here, which is you won't see us being potentially investors without underwriting and perhaps a bit more VC-like. Those are not investments we would make going forward. So we will only do it where we think it really helps us from an underwriting and distribution perspective, which I hope makes strategic sense. The second thing I've said, and I've tried to be very clear about to give guidance to the market, is we have 36 investments in MGAs. Five of them are consolidated within our accounts, i.e. we have either a majority shareholding or we own them 100%. Those generate over 600 million of premium to our underwriting business. So they're significant and they're important. And I think people can understand the strategic rationale for them. But without question, we have too many. And so my belief is that we need to be more focused and therefore we need to challenge ourselves about the long-term ownership of some of these investments. And so I would say over time, you should expect us to have stakes in less and in the near term, you won't see us make any investments in distribution. Otherwise, I'm adding them as quickly as I'm taking them away, which would sort of defeat the purpose. So this is about focusing the organization. I think fewer and deeper gives us the best chance of strategic success. But it is the second pillar of our organization as well. We make nearly 40 million of profit. 
from our consolidated MGAs. Those are obviously capital light earnings and therefore can be a really attractive part of the overall organisation. But I've tried to be clear in those points as part of our year-end earnings because I think it is really important to clarify perhaps a separation between the strategy of the past, as you alluded to, and the strategy going forward. But we shouldn't be expecting to see you out in the market making active attempts to sell these investments. It sounds more like you're going to allow them some to mature, some to thin out naturally, that kind of thing. I'm not going to comment on our processes or our timings specifically, and I'm certainly not going to name individual MGAs. That would be particularly uh, wrong to do that. Look, we will act in the best interests of our shareholders, and therefore, if someone came along and made us an attractive offer, we would obviously consider that. But as I say, the key point is we will have less over time, which allows this organisation to really focus on the MGAs that we think can help shift the dial and overlap and complement our underwriting strategy. And how long do you think it would take before you're in a position to entertain any new MGAs at some point in the future? Haven't set I that mean, guidance. I mean, new, probably more traditional, you know, No, no, I, I haven't ones. set the guidance because in truth, you should never be completely black and white on things because if a fantastic opportunity came up, we would, of course, look at it. But I'm trying to dispel the myth that we'll be volume purchasers going forward. But we've got some amazing growth stories in our distribution partners. If I highlighted people like Arcadian as an example, where we have an investment in that business, the growth profile is fantastic. The relationship is fantastic. And we're really strategic partners to name but one. So if an opportunity like that came along, I would be pretty daft to be so belligerent on the strategy that I wouldn't look at that type of opportunity. You've just announced this uh, lost portfolio transfer transaction, very substantial one, with Comp Read. Run us through it. No, we're really, really pleased. And obviously, it's a big announcement, both for us as a company, but also in the marketplace as well. And really, the rationale behind it is really clear. This is about aligning our balance sheet with our go-forward strategy. And as you know, in Q3, we announced some quite significant closures in our property international cap business. And so primarily, that's what this lost portfolio transfer relates to. And I think it's a really positive message to our investors, which is look forward, not backwards. It gives finality. And I think it really draws to a close that chapter in Sirius Point's history. And so we're really pleased with the deal that we've done with Henri, a partner who we've worked with for a number of years as well. So we know them and they know us. And we're working really hard now to close the deal out by the middle of the year. Well, so you've moved pretty fast. These are fairly recent reserves. And also it's a fairly recent decision you, you took to pull out of that line. Yeah, no, we have moved quickly. And I, I promise you, if you spoke to my staff, they would, <laughs> they would definitely say we've moved quickly over the last few months. But I think given where Sirius Point was in the marketplace relatively with our peers, our share price, etc. The last thing I wanted was to have an overhang where people may have been concerned about negative reserve runoff. We weren't concerned about it, but I think it was a not an unfair perception, if you like, for people to have on us. And so I was really clear that I wanted to move at pace and bring that finality to those reserves, even though we thought those reserves were prudent. And as you saw from the press release that we made we're releasing over 100 million of reserves at the point that we close the deal. So we're really pleased, but I think it really gives a certainty and allows everyone, investors, staff, customers, every stakeholder, let's look forward, not backwards. 
And when you talk about looking forward, there's an interesting feature of this deal is that you're retaining claims handling authority on that business that you've got the ongoing forward relationships with. I'm not sure that's always common in an LPT structure like this. Is that something you had to sort of insist on? It was something that was important to us. And for us, we have got many existing relationships that are broader than just the classes of business that we are including in the LPT, for example. And so for us, it was just an important customer principle where where we have live relationships that will be ongoing. We felt it was important to retain the claims handling responsibility. And that's something that Compre were very comfortable with too. So I think it's a real important point for our customers that they can rely on Sirius Point maintaining that claims handling. Yes, and obviously that must be indicative also of this good relationship you've struck up with Compre as well, because obviously the second deal you've done with them. So again, they must trust you on that. So and when they have to. <laughs> Well, no, listen, trust forms part of every business equation of that, there is no doubt. And we've got the added benefit, less so me, to be honest, but certainly the wider team at Sirius Point of working with Compre over the last few years. I think they've done a terrific job. We formed a really good partnership with them. I've got to know the team really well, really quickly, because we've worked hard with them. And I'm really looking forward to closing the deal out and continuing that relationship. Yes, indicative of the way that the way you can manage an insurance and reinsurance group has changed that you can pull out of a line you know only a couple of quarters ago and be announcing a deal like this that hopefully closing in within a couple of quarters that wasn't possible 10 years ago was it i wouldn't have thought i think it was more difficult i think that's true and i've done these deals in my past i think we definitely have worked at pace but without making any compromises i want to really just reinforce that point but this deal was something that was important to us it was important to compre I think also a management philosophy of mine is let's work and push as hard as we can. We've got a busy agenda beyond the LPT for Sirius Point, and I want to make sure that we've got the bandwidth and the capability to focus on that as well. And I think, look, the deal has a really strong added advantage for our investors. It's a very strong message on our reserving philosophy, which we always have articulated as being prudent. And the great thing is about this deal is this is a real tangible evidence point to that level of prudency. That's why we quoted the 100 million number. Obviously, in addition to that, there will be the capital relief that we get on top of that. We haven't disclosed that yet publicly to the market, but I can say that the number will be bigger than 100 million, obviously, in terms of a benefit to shareholders' equity and ultimately a lift to our returns. So we're delighted. We did work hard. We did push hard. But I think hopefully everyone can see the benefits of doing that. And again, what about share buybacks as a tool for capital management? I would love to have the problem where I start looking at different capital options in the organisation. I think that's not for now. To be really honest, the priority for this organisation is to get the business model. And by that, I really mean the underwriting model working properly and being capital generative. And obviously to reduce the volatility in our investments, which we've already talked about. I think if we do those things, we'll be a real strong capital generator. And quite frankly, I'm open to any of the levers that are open to us in terms of our shareholders and investors. That was very much my attitude when I was at RSA as well, and it will very much be my attitude here, but it's not a near-term debating point. And obviously, whatever's good enough for Warren Buffett it has to be good, good for everybody else. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> obviously, something that would be immediate, again, that was in your results, is a $50 million 
cost reduction target. And that's quite urgent because that's this year, really, isn't it? It's by 2024, which obviously we're in 2023 now, so you haven't got long to do that. Where's that coming from? Obviously, is some of it already in there in that closed offices relating to the pulling out of international property cat? Is most of it already done then? Well, you're making me panic now because you're, you're almost counting the calendar off, Mark, before... Well, before I know, but that's, well, it's the <laughs> nature of our business that we know it's, it's this time of year and then suddenly no, someone no. says Monte Carlo yeah, and then no, no. You, listen, you, make... can't, you can't say that that early this year or then someone says Christmas, you know, and renewals. No, listen, you're, you're very fair to make the point. Let me try and give a bit of context around the cost because I think it's not cost for cost's sake. The legacy here, which you pointed out at the beginning, is this is two organisations that have been brought together in the recent past Coming in, I don't think they've been brought together properly, and I think, therefore, there are some infrastructural opportunities to bring us together, primarily with a view of serving our customers better, but with an added advantage that we can probably reduce cost. The second thing is we work in a commoditized industry. We might not like to say that, but we do, and it has relatively low margins, and therefore every lever within the organisation counts. And one of the observations I had coming in here is that the cost ratios relative to some of our peers were too high. And so it's incumbent on me, it's incumbent on my leadership team to make sure that we are as efficient as we possibly can be and that we feed that into our plan. So you are right, we have set ourselves a 50 million target by the end of 2024. So I have got a few months yet to make sure that we get those <laughs> actions embedded. The great news is we've made significant progress already. You talked about the branch closures that we've made, but we're also re-looking at the organisational design as part of that. And one of the real opportunities here is to really make sure that we have an infrastructure across our specialisms that act as one serious point. And one of my challenges for the group and for myself is to make sure we operate in a much more global way, as opposed perhaps to a legacy way, which is founded in the two organisations that were brought together. That's a conversation we're having internally and is work in progress as we sit here. I think one of the consequences of that will be we will naturally save cost. Is that pure operational sort of things, systems and controls and other things, or, or are there too many balance sheets, for example, that you could get rid of one of those? Or? Nothing's <laughs> out of scope, trust me, and we are shining the torch on everything. And I think that's good, and our shareholders would expect us to do that. Obviously, I think the challenge comes in prioritising what you do first. So I would never want to rule anything out, but definitely the other lever that we're looking at is simplifying the business. And therefore, to use your example of balance sheets as an example, that might be one where we have fewer. We might have fewer offices, which we've already taken a decision on. So I think if we're really truly going to act as one serious point, we really have to simplify the business. And that's the sort of goal that we have as a leadership team within the company. And sometimes those things aren't just monetary, they're just about focus and suddenly realizing how much compliance and how many different regulators do you really want to deal with at all, any given moment. I think the biggest part of becoming one serious point, if I'm being really honest, is the cultural difference it will make within the company. And I hope that that's something over time that people who either join the company as employees or our customers experience when they touch us. And therefore, bringing these companies together, putting costs slightly to the side and saying, look, that's going to be an outcome of some of the decision making that we take. The primary reason for aiming for a more global organisation, galvanised, if you like, around our specialisms with a sort of one objective of we work together for our customers. I think that will be felt, I'm hoping, as people interact with us a lot more over the coming years. 
I suppose something that probably is at the heart of that cultural difference within the organisation or, you know, the two legacy organisations that one was very, very different was a hedge fund remodel completely different from one of the most traditional insurance and reinsurance models that you could imagine and sort of, very, you know, long-standing, not quite as traditional as RSA, but almost. So how does that relationship with third point, where does that go? Now, obviously, you're not a hedge fund re anymore, so you're now de minimis invested in hedge funds like everybody else. Uh, you know, there's a small allocation, why not? But where's that relationship with Third Point going to be? Well, Third Point are a shareholder in this company. Yep. You know, they sit around our board table. But as I keep saying to people, they're less than 10% of the overall group. And I found them an incredibly constructive shareholder. We also have an investment mandate with Third Point as well, where they broadly manage our credit portfolio. And we're really happy to have them do that. So that's the relationship we have with Third Point, the two effectively the relationships we have. And I find them a really supportive partner in both. So that culture question is more of an operational one for you to really get around the table and, yeah, and yes. bring Look, people together. I think the point you raise is a really good one, which is they are two very different organisations coming together. Yeah. And a couple of comments I'd make. The first one is I've been really impressed by the calibre of people. So putting legacy organisation to one side, I think both companies bring a depth of talent, a depth of capability, a depth of relationships to our brokers and clients as well. And so what we want to make sure is that we leverage those strengths. That being said, I think now that we have set out our strategy going forward, we really need to make sure that we have a culture that will really help us drive towards that strategy. I'm afraid my philosophy is if strategy was as easy as the component parts, everyone would be successful. I'm afraid culture is the egg in the cake mixture that binds things together. And it's about how we do things around here. It's about what we stand for. And I think that area definitely needs some work and we can be better at what we do in that regard. But our aim is to be one serious point working for our customers in a way which they respect our expertise. So we spent lots of training in the way days and that kind of thing. I'm afraid culture is not about training and way. <laughs> I would put it back to the component parts if it was that easy, Mark. Every everyone would do it. I'm afraid culture starts with me as well, being serious. And I need to make sure that I model the values, the principles that I think I espouse to for the organization to have. But the second part of that is I need to listen to other people's views, opinions and thoughts as to the culture that will be a key component of us being successful in our strategy. Well, Scott, we've spoken about pretty much everything I wanted to speak about. I don't know if, if you've got any kind of final messages uh, before we move on. Look, thank you. I've enjoyed <laughs> the questions. The good news is you've managed to ask all the hard ones, so well done. Look, I think this is a really exciting time for Serious Point. When I joined the organisation, one of the outside-in views that I had was this was a great company that deserved to have better outcomes. I would say, having been in the organisation, that has been strengthened hugely. And so I'm hugely excited to work with my colleagues in really helping Sirius Point achieve its potential in the near term, the medium term and the long term. So I think the future's bright. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. 
Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.